name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Drew. Can you guys help me out real quick? Uh, I'm going to say a, a cliche, and you raise your hand if you're familiar with that cliche. I'm feeling froggy. Do you? No? I'm, I guess my wife was right. It's, I've got a frog in my throat. Is what, that, that is currently also happening. Uh, <clears throat> a few weeks ago, uh, we were looking over the sermon series that we have laid out up until the, like, way into the fall, right? And Annie brought up the fact that we were going to talk about David and Bathsheba on fifth Sunday. And I kind of felt this lump in my chest. It's like, uh, I'm going to have to talk about David and Bathsheba with 252 in the room. It's just all of our younger kids. And I started playing the story in my head. And I was like, I don't trust myself to make that a G-rated sermon. So we're going to switch that, and we're going to do it today instead for my benefit alone, right? Actually, there's a couple staff members that were like, I don't, I'm not ready to have that conversation with my kids at the dinner table. Can you not? Sure, I can accommodate that. So last week, uh, Randy shared a message about uh, making mistakes and God's reaction to our making mistakes. And I don't know about you, but if you were here last week, you have considered where you put your credit card more often. You can go to the self-checkout, you're like, where do I stick this? Because I don't want to lose it. <clears throat> but today we're going to talk about not mistakes, but um, outright sin. Uh, you're probably familiar with this story, David and Bathsheba. This is, this is a, a story that is, uh, just exemplifies sin and the way that it manifests itself in our lives. Uh, and so today, what I want us to do is I want us to try and define sin. How do we know what sin is? And then how, how do we go from knowing what sin is to, to processing through that? What, what are the steps that we need to take? So there are stories in my life that if I shared them in this moment, there's probably many of you would cringe. And there are some of you in the room that would probably feel like you could take a deep breath if I shared those stories with you about my life. Because there are some of you who are probably ankle deep in sin. And there are others of you who may be like knee deep in sin. Others of you are waist deep. There's probably maybe one or two of you who are in sin up to your eyeballs. And you are terrified to tell anyone that you have sinned or that sin is currently ongoing in your life. Over the years, there have been... Uh, plenty of people who walked into my office and thought that they were going to drop a nuclear bomb on me if they said the words out loud of how they had been entrenched in sin over the past X number of time, 
right? I tell you that there is nothing you can tell a redeemed person that they're going to be shocked by. Do you know why that is? It's because they understand how God's grace works. I can't tell you how many times those people have stepped into my office and had the courage to say, this is my problem, and then moments later experience this unexplainable peace in their lives. So, I'm going to tell you the story, which you're probably familiar with, and I want you to try and define sin as we go through the story. What does sin look like? So, last week, Randy had us on a path of David bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. And there are several things that happen in between that story and the story of Bathsheba. Uh, God makes a covenant with David, which we're going to talk about next week. And he also has these massive victories over the enemies of God that are, that are pursuing Israel, fighting against Israel. God, has, uh, God delivers, again, uh, David and the Israelites from their enemies. And then the story of of Bathsheba starts out with uh, saying that David was actually at home during a season when the nation's armies were out at war. And what was typically happening during that time is that the kings were with the armies instead of in their hometowns. So David is at home, and he takes a walk on his roof. And he looks out over this kingdom that God has built through him for himself and for his people, which he explicitly tells David. And he looks and he's looking around the city and he sees a woman on her roof. And then he notices Bathsheba. Wow, that's a really beautiful woman. And then he takes another step. He says, hey, hey, servant, can you, who is, who is that? The servant says, oh, that's Bathsheba. That's Uriah the Hittite's wife. And David says, I want you to go bring me that woman. Bring her to me. David sees Bathsheba walk into his palace and then he takes her for himself. He, he knows her biblically, right? It's the G-rated version. A couple weeks later, probably, Bathsheba is finishing up her um, process of cleansing herself from this sin that she's been a part of, and she notices that something happened during the interaction with David. So she sends a message to David saying, hey, uh, we actually procreated during that. And David starts to play out in his mind what will happen from his actions, right? And his first intention is, well, I I think I can fix this. 
so he sends a message to Joab. He says, Joab, send me Uriah. Uh, I, need to, I need to speak with him. And Uriah gets to the palace, and uh, David says, hey, Uriah, how's the, uh, how's the war going? Uriah says, good. He says, uh, why don't you go home and see your wife? I think that would be great for you to do. So the next morning, David wakes up, and uh, he finds out that Uriah did not go to his home. He slept at the gates with the other men. He refused to go and, and lay with his wife. So David calls him back. He says, hey, Uriah, I noticed I heard you didn't go home. What, what's up with that? And Uriah says this, <clears throat> verse 11, chapter 11. The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my master Joab and his soldiers are camped in the open field. How can I go to my house to eat and drink and sleep with my wife? As surely as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. You imagine what David is thinking when he hears Uriah say that? Uh, that's actually exactly what I've been doing, and I need you to do that right now. So he, he actually offers Uriah a drink, wine, and he gets Uriah drunk and says, okay, now go home. And he actually sends him home and sends him with a gift to his house. David wakes up the next day, and Uriah has still refused to go home. So David says, okay, I need to rethink this plan. So he writes a letter, and he puts it in Uriah's hand and says, go and give this to Joab. And Uriah returns to the battlefront, gives the letter to Uriah. Uriah opens it and reads it, and it says, put Uriah in the front of the army and then draw back from him so that he dies. Uriah just carried his own death sentence from David to the commander of the army. It's terrible. And so Uriah dies. David hears the report back from the military commanders that Uriah has died and that uh, not only Uriah has died, but also other men have died as a consequence to this. And so Uriah writes back to Joab and says, be encouraged, go fight harder, keep going. David mourns, Bathsheba mourns, and after the time of mourning is over, David calls Bathsheba and takes him as his own wife. And chapter 11 ends with a very memorable text. It's actually all throughout Judges, you'll remember it. It says that the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 12 starts been some time, probably about nine months or so, and Nathan, the prophet, shows up and says, hey, I have a story for you. You probably will like to hear it. It's a good one. He shares a story about a rich man who has a plethora of sheep, and the poor man has one sheep in this kingdom. There's a rich man with plenty of sheep and a poor man with one, and the rich man has a guest. The guest comes to his house, and the rich man thinks, I probably should feed this guy while he's here. That's what, I, that's what I would normally do. So he looks at his sheep and he says, you know what? I'm not going to really, I'm not going to take one of my own sheep. I'm going to take the sheep that, that that poor guy has, the one guy with the one sheep. Let's take him. 
No sooner than Nathan finishes telling the story, David responds. He says, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. Because he has done this thing and shown no pity, he must pay for the lamb four times over. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Nathan continues to speak on behalf of God. He says, I've raised you up from nothing. I gave you this whole kingdom. I made you king. Not only that, I also gave you all of the wives of the previous king, and you've amounted more than that. If you thought that was too little, why didn't you ask? I would have given you so much more than that. But now what's going to happen is the sword will not depart from your house. And those that are a part of your house are actually going to take your wives and sleep with them. And David responds, I have sinned against the Lord. The Lord has taken away your sin, says Nathan. You will not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord. The son born to you will surely die. So his son, his newborn baby, gets sick. David spends seven days on his face, not eating, not moving, but laying flat on the ground. His servants come and they say, they're whispering in the corner. David overhears them and he asks, is he dead? Yeah, he's dead. David gets up and he goes and washes himself. He begins to eat a meal and his servants are watching him do this and say, why? What are you doing? Why are you having this reaction? David says, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. This is profound sin. It's incredible how quickly David went downhill. So what I've done is I've actually listed out the progression of David's sin. Now what I want you to do is take a minute and read through that. This is a rhetorical question, and I want you to say it out loud because you might embarrass yourself. Where does David begin to sin? Where does temptation turn into sin?
Some people will say that he should have been at war. That's what was typically happening, right? And so at the beginning, at the outset of the story, he's already sinning. He's already done something against the Lord. I'm not aware of a Levitical law that says if you are the king and it's wartime, you should not be on your roof, right? Certainly, it's not a sin for him to walk on his roof, his own property, right? Probably not. It's also probably not a sin for him to look around the city that God has built through him, right? And how many of you walk around and try not to look at certain things? It's just like happening, right? You just open your eyes and see, yeah? I can tell you it took me a really long time not to feel like I shouldn't look at women because of my past. Like the only woman I should look at and see beauty in is my wife. The rest of you are hideous. <laughs> right? Like that's, that's what I came to. I have to like, I have to work up myself. Am I, do people... Do people think that if I look at this person that I'm sinning, right? I, that's a tough road to hoe, a road to hoe, right? <laughs> Feeling froggy. <clears throat> so it's a trick question. You don't actually know where David begins to sin because what's happening is, is in his heart. Right? We can't actually examine what's happening in someone else. James 1, 14, 15 say it like this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So when is the point when sin conceives itself? I don't know. For anyone else other than myself, I know when I've stepped over that boundary and I, this, is, this feels like sin, I'm here, right? And so what's typically happening in our lives, even in Christian faith, is that what we want to do is we want to build a barrier between that point and what is utter sin, right? I need to be able to, to, to come to this place and stop myself. If I can do that, then I'll be okay. How many of you are there? How many of you are, are saying to yourself, man, if I just, oh, I need an accountability partner, someone to, to help me walk through this and make sure, hold my feet to the fire, make sure that I'm not gonna do X, not gonna do X and Y, or X, Y, and Z, and so on, right? Do you know that that is a misunderstanding of what sin really is? Paul says it like this. Actually, I'll tell you a story real quick. This past summer, I took the kids out into a little patch of woods behind my house. And I thought, it'd be really cool to, to clean this up and like make it nice and like a, a playground. Maybe we'll, we'll build a treehouse. Um, and 
I went out there and it's just like, it's a mess. It's like, it's like no one has ever set foot except for Drew Simpson, who actually played on our lot when he was a kid. And he didn't clean it up. He left it a disaster. <laughs> and so there's, there's actually all this devil's club growing, which that's like, besides Pushki, it's actually way worse than that, right? So I went out there with a hatchet and started chopping off all these like huge pieces of devil's club, piled them up, said, I'll take care of that this summer. This weekend came and I went out there and I started working again, the kids out there. Uh, and I noticed something. I, I found all these places that I had cut off the devil's club. You know what's interesting about it? Right where I cut it off, there's this bright green leafy branch coming out of every single piece of them. I thought, well, that was useless. I didn't actually get rid of anything, right? So then I went and got some gloves, got the shovel, and I started pulling these things out. And they were like wrapped around the roots of trees. And I'm yanking them out. A couple times, I landed on my back trying to get these devil clubs out, right? Pulling them out, pulling them out, and then all of a sudden it comes loose and I went flying, right? It's exactly what happens when you try to create a barrier between you and sin to stop yourself. What you've efficiently done is just separated yourself. You still have sin. Here's why. Romans 7, 7, 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bring forth death, to, be, to bear fruit for death. Paul uses this, this phrase, our sinful passions. Sinful, you can take sin and make it an action, something that you do, right? That's not the totality of the definition of sin. The totality of the definition of sin is that it is embedded in you. The meaning of this word, this, this word hamartia, is self-originated or self-empowered nature. It's something that is happening in you. And then passion is this capacity to feel this strong emotion or feeling. And so what happens is, is you have this nature, and then you have this feeling, and you go for it, right? You gravitate towards it. So how does the story of David help us understand what's happening? The first thing is, is that David realizes he's broken. You throw up that list one more time, the 10, 10 list. Uh, if you look at this list, how many sins did David do? Okay, so the first thing he does is, is he lusts after a woman, right? Uh, then he commits adultery with her. It's actually the same one. Commits adultery with her. Um, well, so let me back up. He covets his neighbor. He looks on this woman and his wife and he says, I want that, right? Then he commits adultery. Then he deceives Uriah. Uh, then he kills Uriah. Um, I had this down this morning. Pretty much every sin that he does, he only doesn't do two sins here. Um, he makes an idol out of Bathsheba 
And then ultimately he exchanges God for being God for himself by doing what he wants. What I calculated this morning is that he only didn't break two of the commandments. Isn't that insane? That's, that's nuts. We read this story and we're like, I mean, that's really bad, but is it that bad? And then we look at ourselves and we say, is it really that bad? It's not that bad, right? But here's the process. David says to Nathan in response to the story, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And then as he's processing this, he actually writes Psalm 51. He says, Psalm 51, 3, 4, and 5. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. As a student at ABI, <clears throat> there are some teachers that you gravitate towards and that you love, you look forward to their classes. And I'll preface this with saying this thought and behavior is wrong, but there are also other teachers that you're like, I don't like that guy. I, I, don't, I don't get things from that class and it's hard for me. And one of those guys was Russ Stoffer. We butted heads like nobody's business. And it was bad and he knew it too. And so one of the things he taught on was fundamentals. And what you need to understand is I had just had this little beautiful, chunky, fat baby boy, right? And he's teaching on the doctrine of original sin and sin nature. And he's saying this stuff and I'm like, nope, my experience tells me different than that because I have this cute little baby boy and there's no way that he's sinful, right? And then I waited two years. <clears throat> and that cute little fat, chunky baby boy did things I didn't teach him, right? He stole from his sister. He lied to my face. And I didn't teach him that, right? And then a few years later, one of my kids, we're standing out back of our house at ABI and we're putting in mulch. And I'm trying to like include them in the work that I'm doing, right? And one of my children looks me square in the face and says, Dad, I'm smarter than you. And I thought, I was like struck in that moment. I thought of Russ. And I was like, I didn't teach my kids to hit, lie, or steal, but I sure didn't teach any of my kids that they're smarter than me. Like, this is counterintuitive, right? You are a child. You need to know that I'm the master, right? That doesn't work. And I just sat around. I was like, you'll get it one day, you know? That's how we are. We think that we're better than God. See, sin is, not, sin is not an act. It's not just an act that you do or that you commit. It's actually when you, make, when you commit to that action, it makes you aware of a deeper depravity that is in you. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Being dead is a state of being or not being, right? If you're really thinking about it. And you are dead. You're, you're part of this state. In the trespasses and sins, when what you once walked, 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out our desires, the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It is not the action that you commit, therefore building a barrier between you and the action leads to nothing. You have to deal with the heart issue. You have to be reborn, remade. See, the gospel has no room for any man to be good. So David, processing his sin and his nature, develops more of an understanding that is not me trying to prevent myself from acting, but for God to come into my life and create something new. And then he goes a step further. David does not reject God because of the consequences that are laid before him. 2 Samuel 12, 11 through 12 and 14. <clears throat> this is what the Lord says, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house before your very eyes. I will take your wives and give them to do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord, the son born to you will surely die. It's really easy to hear that, to examine our own lives and, and want to think, is God really good if he can do that? If he can lay those consequences against David in the midst of his sin, is he really good? So I want to be careful here. There's, there's two perspectives that you can take. You can take, maybe God's not good, or maybe I'm just uh, a bad person, or I'm, I am destined to have all of these terrible things happen to me, right? Everything that happens in our lives is not a result of your direct sin. We live in a fallen, broken world, Right? And so we experience the death of sin at large in our communities, in our homes, right? And so what this, what this means is that we have to walk a line of understanding what our sin is and not rejecting him. What David does in this moment is, is allow the consequences not to push him away, but to drive him towards the Lord. Romans 6, 15, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, no one told you that sanctification was going to be fun or easy, right? Actually, some of you might have heard that. If you will just give your life to the Lord, you'll have streets of gold paved before you. Nothing will ever happen bad to you again. How many of you have that experience? 
I gave my life to the Lord and nothing bad ever happened to me again. That's not how it works. It's actually in God's goodness that he doesn't just allow us to sin and then, ah, it wasn't really that big of a deal, right? It's okay if you just remain sinning. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God is more intent on turning you towards him than allowing you to remain in your sin. And what's funny about David's experience is when the servants ask him, why are you doing this? His response is, maybe the Lord will be good to me. Maybe he will be gracious to me. David actually expects God to be gracious even in the midst of this, the consequences of his sin, the wages of his sin, what he deserves, right? In high school, I was, uh, I had this junky old white truck. Um, and then when that died, my parents gave me their Jeep Cherokee, red Jeep Cherokee. Uh, it was my senior year. And during my senior year, I went to school for one hour a day. And tell you that no 17-year-olds need, needs that little responsibility. Should have way more than that. I had a job, but that was like way later in the afternoon. And so my friends and I would go get lunch, and then we would go back to my house um, or my buddy's house. And we all drove separate cars. And on this particular day, one of my friends passed me at a high rate of speed. And I took that as a challenge to race them home. And so I made a decision to pass my friend who had an RX-7. I was passing a Mazda RX-7 in a Jeep Cherokee. What was I thinking? So I passed him in a blind spot, and then I met a, a car head on. I slammed on brakes, and I barely got behind my friend, but I was still going too fast. I was going to rear end him. So I was like, I'll just take the ditch, see what happens. Took the ditch, head into a culvert, like a deep culvert. Hit the, hit the ditch and flipped over and turned exactly the opposite way. I don't know how I lived. After that, my parents made me ride with my grandmother to school. <laughs> now, is it okay for me to go, Dad, I don't know. These, these are, I don't deserve this. I should get my own car. Give me my own car. I need my own car. No, I, I needed to sit in my grandmother's old brown Buick and drive up to the front of the high school and be embarrassed, right? I deserved the wages of that. I deserved to lose the car based on how I drove it. God is not bad for giving us consequences and making us understand that he has something better for us. Third thing that David does that David was forgiven. He uttered six words. That's all he did. Six words. I have sinned against 
the Lord. And Nathan responds, the Lord has put away your sin. That is incredible. Remember all the commands he just broke? And in an instant, God sees David's heart and he says, that's what I'm looking for. Not someone who strings together a lifetime of perfect performance, but a man who sees himself and understands, I have a problem. I need a savior. I need someone to step into my life and redeem me because I'm on the verge of losing it all. First John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation of our sins and not for ours alone only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Doesn't matter if you are thinking about putting your toes in or if you're waist deep or if you are up to your eyeballs and unable to breathe in sin, God has come for you. And he is inviting you into life with him to be redeemed, to be set free. Because he has something better for you. David, again, writing in the Psalms, chapter 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered Sin is the man against, oh, sorry, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. cannot think that sin is just an action that you cannot take or you should not take. It is embedded much deeper in you, at work in your very flesh to pursue the world. And the only way to stop doing that, to stop pursuing the flesh, is to be made new. If we minimize sin to just actions, what we've done is we've actually minimized the entire gospel. There is no way for any man to overcome his sin without Christ, to be good before a righteous and loving God. You can't build blockades. You can't have enough accountability partners. These are the words that you are looking to have spoken over you. Is 
Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, to be careful to obey my rules. We only overcome the action by housing his spirit, by having him embodied in us and it is through his spirit which he empowers you to overcome going down the road of seeing something that's attractive and inquiring about it and then taking it for yourself and trying to cover up the tracks it's the only way is to follow his spirit is to be made new by him Let's pray. Father, I ask that uh, today we would come to you and confess our great need to have you and to hold you, to be empowered by you. I pray for those in the room who, who may feel like I can't share this with anyone and that there would be an intense calling to freedom in you and that there would be no shame or guilt in coming and admitting because we are all in the same boat. We all need a savior. We all need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you respond, I encourage you to uh, visit our prayer team ministry. Uh, if you need help, taking steps forward. I encourage you to dig into worship this morning, to take part in communion, and to give. Now's the time to come before him and know more of his freedom. Amen. Um, you know, uh, I often, from stage, I often will pray for conviction, and I had someone one time that said, you always pray for conviction, and I mean, that's good, but also, it's kind of a serious thing to pray for conviction. There's, there's mourning in sin and in being convicted, but also there's joy. There's joyful conviction in being invited into closer relationship with Jesus, right? It's not just the acknowledgement of sin I've been a, a participant in. It's actually stepping into life, and it's stepping into wholeness, and it's stepping in, into a reality where you, when you are in bed at night, you and the Lord falling asleep, you don't have to say to yourself that you're trying to hide yourself away from not only God, but from the person next to you, where you're going to be fully open before Jesus and the person to your right and your left saying, yep, I'm broken and yet I've given it all to Jesus. And so that's my prayer for you this morning, my prayer through worship. Lord, would you lead us towards joyful conviction and saying yes to you and saying yes to life. Amen.
Awesome. Well, if you want prayer after, the team's going to be over there for a little bit. I do want to remind you that survey is available. If you if you want to participate in that, you're welcome. There's a handful of people out there um, at a table. It only takes a few minutes. You can take a look at the questions and see if you want to fill that out. You're welcome to. Otherwise, we don't officially end until 1230. So if you want to take a few minutes, help tear down, say hi to somebody, have a good time, uh, have a great week, enjoy the weather, and we will see you next Sunday. God bless.